Hello, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Marion, your guest host. I want to start this episode with something of a confession. I love narrative history, by which I mean works of history that focus primarily on laying out the sequence of major political, social, and cultural events in a given region for a given period. Now, for most of you, that might not seem to be something worthy of confession. In fact, unless you're a fellow academic, the primary way you interact with history is likely in a narrative form. This is true whether you take a survey of Roman history as an undergraduate or pick up the latest history bestseller. But it's actually somewhat rare for professional historians to read narrative histories, at least of their own periods, especially after we finish our graduate training or to write them, especially narratives that cover extended periods of ancient history. There are all sorts of reasons for this, from the way we structure promotion and tenure criteria to the economics of publishing, but the attitude and training of historians themselves also plays a major role. More often than not, we understand our job as historians to be deconstructing existing narratives, either indirectly by adding new information or emphasizing new aspects of a period that previous narratives didn't account for, or by questioning the fundamental assumptions of an earlier generation. Was there a decline before the fall of the Western Roman Empire? Did feudalism exist? That sort of thing. I find this curious because, like many ancient historians I know, I spend a lot of my free time reading about history outside my area of specialty. In fact, one of my current projects is to familiarize myself with the narrative of Byzantine history because, and here's my second confession, I'm not actually a Byzantinist, my training is in classics. Whenever I set out to explore a new period of history, my first instinct is to look for the big narrative, and the quality of what I find often determines whether or not I continue further into the period. I find that narrative simply provides the best mental scaffolding on which to build additional knowledge, and that good narratives also provide a set of themes or meta-narratives that help me retain what would otherwise be a more or less random jumble of names and dates. So I wanted to have a conversation with someone who could really bring a first-person perspective to both the process and the philosophy of narrative history, and I couldn't think of anyone better suited for this than my guest today. Anthony Caldellis is professor of classics at the University of Chicago, and he has just completed a new narrative history of Byzantium from Constantine I and the foundation of Constantinople, through the city's capture by the Ottoman Turks in 1453 under Constantinos XI. I should note here that although he has finished writing the book, depending on when you hear this, it may still be some time before it's available for you to buy. As any academic can tell you, the publishing process is long and full of proofs. One final note about how this episode came about. Anthony has been working on his new history of Byzantium for years, literally he tells me a tenth of his life, and I've been lucky enough to read large sections of it in various stages of development. This writing coincided with my own entry into Byzantine scholarship on the 11th century, for which Anthony's narrative history of the Middle Byzantine period, Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood, was my jumping off point. It also coincided with Anthony and I co-authoring a very technical book on the late Roman military, whose major consequence is a complete revision of the standard military narrative of the late antique or early Byzantine period. For these reasons, narrative was on both of our minds, and I have been threatening to invite Anthony to give a talk to my department on this very topic. 
I may still do that, but it occurred to us during the course of our conversations that this discussion would be valuable for a broader audience. Moreover, after such a long time spent working on his narrative, the first such narrative of Byzantine history in English in a quarter century, Anthony was really the best person to have this conversation with. Meanwhile, I'm, as you now know, a big fan of narrative history, and it was on these grounds that I convinced Anthony to let me hijack his podcast. So, without further delay then, here is my conversation with Anthony. Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Marion. So let's start with a very basic question, and that is just, what is narrative? We're talking about narrative history. What are we actually talking about? So historians and scholars have obviously invented a wild diversity of different ways of writing history, right? So there's there's just a spectrum, um, and every category fades into the next. So it's impossible to produce very crisp definitions here of what a narrative is. There are always going to be sort of exceptions. But I would say... Uh, to think about it in terms of the level of, say, the sentence. Think of an individual sentence and what it does. A sentence in a narrative history is largely going to be telling you something like who did what, you know, when and to whom and under what circumstances or for what reason. You can visualize and picture it. So it its reference are specific people, groups, individuals in specific places doing specific things. So a history book that's made up of, let's say, a majority of such kinds of statements is a narrative history, especially when it's telling um, the story of a you know particular group. So um, you can err in both directions here. You can be so particular and so specific that, like, he rode the horse up to the inn and you know <laughs> tied the reins. Okay, that you're writing a novel, right? And it's not like history anymore, but. The more abstract you become, so the more your prose is disengaged from the particulars of people, places, things, and so forth, and you're talking about concepts like social groups and so forth, uh, then you're veering off into different kinds of history, sort of more thematic conceptual analysis. Right? So I want to give an example here. Um, so this is the first sentence of the uh, book that the first uh, podcast episode was on. So this is Leonora Neville's book on gender. And this is the first sentence. Gender in the medieval Roman Empire has been rarely examined as such, which is odd given the prominent role played by ideas of gender in creating common images of Byzantine society. Right? All right. So very, so, very abstract. Yeah. So, yeah, the the players in that sentence are concepts. Right, genders and abstraction, societies and abstraction, right, and so forth. Um, here's the first sentence of the narrative history that I've just finished. On the 11th of May, 3:30, the sun rising behind the Asian hills across the Bosporus shone for the last time on the ancient city of Byzantium. On that day, the Emperor Constantine rededicated the city to himself and to the fortune of Rome. So, much more com concrete. So, uh, a narrative history is telling that kind of story like it's it's operating on that kind of ontological register <laughs> now he can do other things which i'll talk about but that's basically how i would define it. yeah and i find that interesting because increasingly i've noticed a tendency sort of in place of narratives of you as you've defined them here to have books that are more almost thematic 
studies of a broad period of history. I'm thinking here of Neil Price's um, Children of Ash and Elm. Um, you know, it, it looks at the Viking age, but there's no narrative in it anywhere. It talks about sort of different aspects of Viking society. It's very sort of synchronic in its approach that as it treats Viking society as sort of all one thing. And I find these books very useful, but maybe for reasons that we'll talk about later on, they don't quite help me understand a period in the way that a narrative history does. Um, any thoughts on that before we move on? With that book, I would classify as, let's say, a cultural history. And it, it can also be, you can also have a sort of cultural narrative history. Um, so if I understand correctly, for example, what um, Garth Foden is doing with the first millennium, it mixes narrative history, but with an emphasis on cultural history. He's interested in transformations of, you know, in religion and philosophical thought and, you know, and so forth. And so that that's a kind of mixed style of, of narrative and cultural history. Uh, but I think that's what the Vikings uh, book is getting at. Um, and, and obviously, I do a lot of that, too, in the Byzantine history I've written. But not it's not the majority of it. Gotcha. Um, and this actually brings us to another question, which is, I think, an important one to distinguish between what you're doing and what often people will experience in the classroom. And that is, how does a narrative history differ from a textbook? I don't know, Marion. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I haven't thought much about textbooks. I don't write them. I don't use them. I don't read them. Uh, so that's a that's more a question of what textbooks are and less a question of what narrative histories are. I read lots of narrative histories and I know what those are and the different varieties. But textbooks seem a weird and frightening area for me. I, I, I don't know. Um, what do you think the difference is? So I'll also admit that I don't tend to use textbooks. I, in fact, I actually ended up writing my own for my Roman history courses precisely because one, they're expensive and two, they never quite do what you want them to do, right? Uh, in terms of complementing the material you actually want to cover in a course. Uh, that said, I've, I've thought a lot about actually how I might use your history as a textbook or as sort of providing the narrative frame onto which I can add more detailed discussions if I were to teach a course on later Roman or properly Byzantine history. So yeah. I'm equally apparatic about how exactly we should understand the textbook, but in general, I don't find textbooks as useful as narrative histories for understanding a period. I find them dry, difficult to get through, and oftentimes the information is presented in such a way that it, it retains no hold upon the mind. Yeah, it's often been stripped of color and a lot of the particularity that, that gives narrative history flavor. I think that a lot has changed in the textbook industry in the past 40 years, you know, producing these kinds of results that we're talking about. And that generally hasn't changed so much in, histo in when historians write narrative history. That is not for textbook purposes. And I think that the industry aspect here is the important one. That is, there are industry standards for textbooks now, um, and publishers will sort of expect you to follow those kinds of guidelines um, that tends to produce much more kind of cookie cutter volumes um, that all have the same gaps and the same emphases. Uh, and 
You know, back in the day, so I think as late as the 1980s, textbooks, like books of history that were um, regularly assigned to classes or that were written with the expectation that they would be assigned to classes look very similar to what today we would think of as a narrative history. You know, it's a single author, you know, scholar or expert writing the history based on whatever principles he or she thinks are appropriate, and then kind of issuing it out into the wild and saying, go into the classroom and and do your work. And I, because I remember reading those when I first made the switch from like physics and the natural sciences to history and philosophy, I did read a lot of standard histories just to get the background. And I think some of those were textbooks. Uh, but I didn't at the time feel that I was reading a textbook as such the way I would now. And I think that's because textbooks have changed dramatically since then. Um, I would not want to write a book with that level of intervention by industry standards. And I don't so one I don't particularly find it useful for students. I mean, I give them primary sources and I give them analyses of this or that written by focused, you know, focused analyses. And I think they learn from those. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I ask about textbooks is because there aren't very many long narrative histories anymore. Oftentimes when we do get narrative histories published, they're very short. So in my field of classics, the classic example here is going to be uh, the age of Alexander or the life of Alexander the Great or the conquest of Alexander. We get one of these pretty much every year, maybe two a year, and they cover 30 to 50 years. That is the lifespan of Alexander plus a little bit before and a little bit after so why did you choose to write a long narrative history of the Eastern Roman Empire rather than a, a shorter one? That is either of a shorter period, which we've already done with Streams of Gold, Rivers of Blood, or one of these sort of very short introduction style books where you're just giving a, an overview of the highlights. Well, for two reasons. First, because there is a plethora of those kinds of short, concise, brief <laughs> histories um, in the past yeah, 15 years, I, I could probably list just 10 of them right off. Um, and so I didn't, I was never interested in adding to that number. And also because conversely, we really lack an up-to-date long history, uh, keeping in mind that this is 1,200 years. So we're talking about a period of history that can accommodate a long book. I'm not sure that you could write 1,200 pages on Alexander and not like really lapse into, you know, esoteric minutia or just speculation. Um, so 1,200 years, you know, that's a pretty tight, tightly packed narrative, even at a thousand pages, if you if you do the math, right? So yes, too many short histories and not enough or not a recent long one. In fact, there've only been two single-authored. Uh, long histories by experts, um, uh, Ostrogorsky and Treadgold. Uh, the last one was a generation ago. Um, so I thought it was time. A lot has changed since then. Okay, so that's the first reason. The second is that I think there are things that you just can't do in a concise history. Um, and I'll I'll illustrate it with a metaphor. So these concise histories, and I, I read a number of them until I, I just gave up because I, I, I got the impression that I was reading some repackaged lecture notes, right? Uh, so we're talking about books that tell the thousand-year story in uh, 150 to 200 pages max or something like that. 
is that they, by necessity, can only hit the the mountain peak. So they're leaping from mountain peak to mountain peak, which is the highlights, right? The stuff that would, you know, be visible if the hole were submerged, that, that, that would peak above the waters. And the result is that you can't see how those mountain peaks are interconnected. How do you get from one to the other? And so proper history, I think, has to take the time to travel the valleys and and crags and gorges beneath. And so give you a sense of the overall terrain, because ultimately this isn't just about the terrain, it's about the people in it. And you're really missing most of the people who are not living in the mountaintop on Mount Olympus or in palaces and so forth. They're living down there and and they get lost. Uh, unless you talk about them in very, very abstract ways, at which point I like we come back to the first question you asked, like, is it a narrative history anymore? Yeah. Um, and that actually, that leads me to perhaps a, a, a bias or a prejudice in the field in which we tend to think of, or sometimes narrative histories are treated as uh, superficial compared to the more detailed type of analysis that, uh, we as scholars spend most of our time doing. Uh, as I mentioned in the introduction, we don't actually spend that much time reading or writing narratives after our training for the most part. So um, given that we have all these sort of superficial narratives for the period, how can we save the genre from this pitfall? How do we sort of recover narrative history as a genuine area of academic interest? That's a very good point. And I should say for our audience who hasn't been through grad school in our fields, right, that the training sort of basically looks like this. You're expected to have read some, to have the basic narrative as an undergrad. A concession is maybe allowed that, okay, maybe you haven't read this book or that book or some big book, narrative book in your field. You read that before or at the time that you take your general exams. So before you start writing your dissertation, you're expected to have all that under your belt. After that, you are like an expert who's kind of updating your knowledge by reading the latest, very detailed treatment of this or that and the other thing. And so in aggregate, you're updating your view of the whole by reading specialized studies, right? Yes. Um, and so after and, that- and if I can... you know, if I can jump in here, I would just say that and every part of that is already anachronistic based on my experience of training graduate students, in part because big intro survey courses have very much fallen out of fashion, right? Um, the idea that you would teach a history of Rome from Romulus to Justinian is just not really done anymore. And you can see this even in the textbooks that are being produced. They don't tend to cover um, that kind of span as frequently. And so oftentimes grad students are coming in without that. And moreover, it sort of assumes that this updating is just an automatic process. They don't actually have to sit down and think about it at some point that just by reading a bunch of detailed studies, you'll just more or less integrate that into a larger, into a larger structure of knowledge, which is actual mental work that doesn't happen automatically. This is true. Um, and I think graduate programs are struggling with this problem of students coming to the program who lack the basic background knowledge, um, who, for example, might think that Hannibal was defeated by Caesar. Just, oh yes, I have heard this. Okay. Um, and so they're having to change the way they do their, their 
generals exams or comprehensives. They're called all kinds of things in different places. Um, and to include more narrative history and to ask questions in the exams about like these kinds of basic things. Um, so yes, that is definitely changing. But at the same time, uh, and since we're speaking as historians here, now my degree is in history, yours is in classics, but to a certain degree, we're both historians. I was trained in a history program and there was at the time open disdain for narrative history. Like this is not worthy of your talents. And the methodologies that we were taught in like a methods course was all about like economic history and social history and, you know, quantification and methodology and things like this. Uh, there were no specimens of good narrative history presented in that course, which was a, like a 14 week semester course where we had to do a lot of readings, no narrative history. Right. Um, it was all about, I, I mean, Obviously, all of these works have some bits of narrative in them, but they're not narrative history in, in the way that we're going to talk about. And so, oh, I remember there was micro history that could sometimes be narrative, but the point of it was not the narrative. The point of it was to extract conclusions from sort of very particular specific um, events and so forth. So there's a point to that disdain, which is that without some kind of deeper analysis going on either at the same time or alongside the narrative it can become very superficial and we have all read superficial narrative histories it's easy to write them <laughs> um, yes read and then immediately forgotten uh yeah i mean i mean i sometimes remember the events that they recount but i don't understand them right and that's the difference I don't know why they happened in the way that they did. Okay, so we're not never going to really ex be able to explain ancient act the actions of ancient people like causally. I'm not sure we can explain the actions of any people at any time causally. That's an infinite right uh, uh, project. But you can understand better the parameters in which they made their decisions. And those parameters are, you know, economic and social and cultural and religious and so forth. But to understand the parameters, you need to talk about broader structures that are non-narrative in the way we present them, like necessarily, right? And so a narrative history, in order to not fall into this sort of pitfall of superficiality, it has to find a way to present those deeper social structures at the same time. And, and this is the difficulty because anyone can talk about, you know, wars and emperors and, you know, plots and intrigue at the court and things like that's kind of easy to, to tell if you have a lively or vivid narrative style, it's no problem. But you're not actually explaining what's going on. And so the real difficulty is in combining those two. Um, and this is something I, I really had to work on. For example, the latest book in my field that's a single authored long history, which is Warren Treadgold's, um, which has a lot of virtues, but it split those two things apart. And so it would have three chapters of, as the expression goes in the field, one damn thing after another. And then one chapter talking about the kind of broader developments that were taking place in the period covered by the previous three, which was often a quarter of a millennium. And 
I found the analytical chapters as a historian, I mean, they had some interesting things, but the narrative itself was very, very tedious simply because it literally was just one thing after another. And the actions of the named individuals or of even of the groups were not being linked at all times to a kind of background presentation of the culture at large. And this is, I think, what needs to be done, but it is difficult to do. Um, so I've had to interweave analyses into the narrative at all times um, so that that kind of relationship between the particular and the more abstract is relatively clear to someone reading the book. At least that was the goal. And that's what I tried to do. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that uh, despite that that goal, and I think you're right about needing that kind of context in order for these narratives to to hold together and be intellectually and conceptually useful, almost all narratives, and your book in, included, is fundamentally built on a kind of framework of political history. So why is that so essential to the project? And is that a problem? I mean, for instance, I suspect that political historical element is one of the reasons why when you were being trained big narrative histories had fallen out of fashion because there was a move away from political history towards social and economic and all these other sort of um, more thematic approaches to history. Yeah, or even <clears throat> more thematic conceptual approaches to political history. Right? <clears throat> like, and, I, and I've written some of those too, uh, where you're talking about like the ideologies behind the political sphere and things like that. Uh, though you get little bits of narrative embedded in that kind of analysis but it's fundamentally an analysis like Leonora's on gender, right? Like it, it operates at that level of conceptual abstraction. Uh, so the, the default expectation for an ancient narrative, for a history of ancient, um, for narrative history of antiquity is political. Um, and that's for a particular reason that the sources that survive um, that enable us to write narrative history focus overwhelmingly on politics and war. Now, I would qualify that in my case in the following way, also church history. And my book has a lot of church history, even in narrative form in it. Not more than the political, I would say, but, but a lot. And part of the reason is because we have very detailed sources about those events as well, right? In fact, in some cases, much more so. So if you think about, like, take the whole of antiquity, like a thousand years, I don't know, from Homer to Muhammad or whatever. Um, that's more, uh, 1500 years. Um, the events that we know in the greatest detail are the church councils, right? That is where you can follow what a group of people are doing day by day, week by week, over the course of like a month, sometimes more, but right. So the Council of Ephesus, one, 431 AD, right? Council uh, of Ephesus one is the event in ancient history that we know the most about up until that point, right? Volumes and volumes of text from so many different perspectives, right? Because it actually wasn't one council. It was two groups that hated each other and they never actually met in one place. So they produced separate and contradictory narratives. All right, anyway. 
Um, so that continues uh, down to the end. I mean, Council of Ferrara, Florence in the 15th century, right? Again, we have some very, very, very detailed narratives of that. So that's because of the nature of the sources. It is possible today to write economic narrative history, right? Because we know which bankers or ministers made which decisions about currencies and exchange rates and the gold standard and this banks and, and that bank and, and so forth. And you can do that. You can write a very detailed narrative history of banking. Uh, so it's not necessarily military or political. That's just the kind of the bias of the sources that we have to work with. Uh, so in a sense, my answer to that question is a def by default, like that's all we can really do, right? However, um, there is, I suppose, a more positive answer, which is that that's also the goal that I set out to, um, th that's why I, I, I wrote the history in the first place, because the the main theme and preoccupation of the history is the East Roman state and its society, uh, which are one, one thing, state and society. And that state and society were, were organized primarily through its political system and its legal system. Without those two things, it sort of collapses and to becomes very different things that require different historical treatment. Like what happens in the Ottoman Empire once they've been conquered, for example, no longer have their own political system or really their own legal system outside of, you know, their religious, you know, community. Uh, so since this is by and large the history of a state and its culture and society, the main axis has to be political um, and so uh, now, yeah, one can disagree with that. It is logically possible to disagree with that and say, no, the, the, the Roman state is not that important as an axis or framework for that history. And, you know, I'm going to tell in a different way. I disagree with that opinion, but it's a, it's a logically consistent position. I, I, I just don't think that the facts bear it out, but one can disagree about it. Yeah, and I would say that I, I agree with everything that you just said. And one thing that I think we may have lost sight of to a certain extent in recent years is just that politics matters, right? Political decisions have huge consequences for everyone in a society. Um, this is one of the reasons why I've been sort of fundamentally unconvinced by some of the attempts to soften the edges of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, because by a lot of observable metrics, life gets worse, right? Cities get smaller. There are meaningful changes as that political system ceases to function that we can observe in the in the sources. But uh, that's a perhaps another episode. Um, yeah, but if I can add to that, so a seemingly contrary, but in fact, actually complementary uh, response to what you just said would be, for example, that, oh, wait, we actually see that skeletons get taller after the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, and that, so whatever it was about the Roman Empire, you know, extractive techniques, lead mining, actually have a separate episode about that with Paul Stevenson. Uh, coming up, or maybe already posted, I don't know the order in which I'll post all these things, um, had very negative consequences for the health of the people in them, or maybe not very negative consequences, but observable biological consequences and, and health effects. 
And so to that degree, losing the superstructure of the Roman state had beneficial consequences for a lot of people. And you can say, well, okay, but that proves the point again, right? That the, the, the political presence of a state actually matters one way or the other, whether for, for good or ill, right? Um, it's, not, it's not neutral. It didn't just come and go with a whimper and nobody noticed and with no consequences. Um, yeah. So perhaps a, a slightly more sophisticated version of the same critique of the, the focus on political history is that if you're going to write something with that sort of framework, the narrative inevitably focuses on leadership cadres inside of the state and the church. And that means inevitably mostly on men. So is that an inevitable problem when writing this kind of history, especially for the ancient world? And do you think that it in any way undermines the function of narrative history? So is it a problem, basically? And what kind of problem is it? I, well, I think it is It is a problem and it is inevitable. <laughs> but we can mitigate it. Um, and by the way, we can mitigate it, I think, we're in a better position to mitigate it for East Roman history than for ancient or classical history. Um, so the question has two parts as I see it. One, the focus on leadership and two, the gender aspect. Uh, so the gender aspect, you know, I can address, well, at length if necessary, but I'll, I'll try to, you know, restrict it here. So the women are there, um, much more so than in the sources for classical antiquity. Uh, you do need to look for them, though. And we are beginning to do more and better work uh, when it comes to finding them. Again, I will point to another episode that either I have just posted or will post with uh, Anna Kelly, which is on finding women's labor in the Egyptian papyri. So there's a lot of sort of basic grunt work, sort of mole digging that has to be done in any case to find the women. Um, and I have tried, you know, whenever we have that kind of data, like um, the number of petitions to the court of Diocletian that were that came from women versus men, right? Or in land registries, uh, like in Asia Minor, you sometimes get them, how much land is owned outright by women, um, things like that. Uh, occasionally, you will have women running the state. <laughs> like there are a couple of instances, as you know, right? There are some women who just decided, meh, I'm just going to do this myself, <laughs> right? Um, they're mentioned very often in hagiographical sources. And 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 gender issues were very important. Uh, think about, for example, the, the sheer misogyny that is expressed in a lot of ascetic literature. Um, and I think it's important that those sort of misogynistic ascetic attitudes, for all that they're dominant in the texts that we have, were not socially dominant. Right? So they didn't manage to force the women out of sight, you know, back into the household or veil them, you know, by law or anything like that. It was the opposite. Uh, the men had, the ascetics had to go off in the desert or behind walls or whatever. Um, so... There are ways of addressing the gender balance. I've tried to do so. I know that there's a lot more that can be done. Um, and and a lot of good work is being done in that direction. So, I, you know, if I were to do this in 20 years, if I were to redo this in 20 years, which I am not going to do, 
there will be a lot more material along those lines that I could use. Okay, so the other thing about leadership, inevitably, the narrative is going to be mostly about the leadership, uh, you know, elites in the state and church and, you know, local society. But I tried to keep in mind that they are not the goal of my work. They're not the ones that I was looking for. I actually was primarily interested in the fortunes of the entire population. And so I had to use other techniques to try to bring that population to the fore in whatever way I could. So sometimes they appear in the sources as agents, right? As like the subject of the sentence, who did what, right? So the people of Constantinople appear very often, very large groups, provincial groups very often. But also, they are directly impacted by state policy. And this is the important thing to keep in mind, uh, that political decisions, especially economic decisions, have consequences for everybody, for taxation, for military recruitment. But also, these wars and so on aren't just um, you know frivolous adventure stories on the frontier where you're talking about battles because you like to read about battles. No. There was a lot at stake in those for the majority of the population as, for example, like, would they then be subject to continual raiding uh, by enemy groups uh, that was extremely destructive of, of their lives, uh, but also of their economies? Like, if you know that someone, some group of raiders is going to pass through possibly next year, and even if you can rush off to the nearest mountain fort and you're safe with a few of your cattle, but you're not going to invest too much in expanding your economic production if they're just going to come along and ruin it. Um, and so there is a direct correlation between the state's ability to contain foreign rating and economic growth. Um, and we're now getting a lot of studies about this. I will point to yet another episode <laughs> that we did with Alex Sarandis on rating um, a few months ago. Uh, where he talks about this kind of impact. And so one of the main preoccupations of the, of the East Roman state in all periods was to contain that rating. Uh, because even if you were to take a selfish view of its interests, which I don't, um, that rating diminishes its ability to collect revenue. Uh, to say only one thing. So my interest is, in fact, in the population. This is why I try to talk about demography, you know, about where people live, the conditions of their lives. And I think that the Roman state actually had more of an impact on the lives of ordinary people um, than a lot of scholarship recognizes. A lot does, but a lot doesn't, assuming that you know, this is some kind of, you know, feeble medieval state with low capacity. I, I don't, I don't think it was. Um, and I see a sort of narrative emerging about, you know, much more sort of powerful interventionist states in pre-modern times. But that's a different um, discussion. I am actually primarily interested in the majority of the population and their fortunes. Yeah, and I'll maybe offer listeners just a, a preview of, I think, one of the most striking instances where these ideas intersect. And for me, that's in the reign of uh, Andronikos II, when he, uh, in order to get the Catalan company out of his territory, he orders his subjects not to plant food and, and basically creates an artificial famine to starve not only his own people, but this hostile military force out of his territory. And, and it works. And he keeps his 
crown, right? He's not overthrown by popular riots as a result of creating starvation. It's a really, really remarkable episode in in any period of history, but I think really speaks to what you're talking about, the capacities of the state and the political apparatus. Yeah, that, that was a pretty desperate moment. Um, and yeah, there were protests uh, against it, um, but uh, there really weren't many options. But the, the fact that he managed to push that through is pretty remarkable. Um, and yes, with far-reaching consequences for his subjects at that time. Uh, so let's turn now maybe back towards the subject of narrative history and its role in academia. So this is something that I think is underappreciated or under-discussed and certainly under-theorized because, well, frankly, we all depend upon these large narratives to some extent, either having them or reading them to gain a basic understanding as we've discussed, but they aren't really valued as scholarly productions. They're viewed as, as we said, old fashioned. So what do you think the role of these narrative works is in scholarship? What role do they play for us as academics or should they play for us as academics? I don't know, Marion. I think that's up in the air and it kind of depends on what kinds of narratives are available in each field and what they aspire to do. So I, I think different fields are very different in this regard. Uh, you know, Roman history, ancient Roman history has, I think, traditionally been a field where modern historians write a lot of narratives. Um, there are a lot of, you know, exciting stories to tell and they have a place in the popular imagination. So there's this whole spectrum of narrative from very, very popular, you know, kind of simplified narratives um, or, you know, overly dramatized and so forth um, to very sophisticated uh, scholarly reconstructions that have a lot of sort of esoteric digressions and, you know, quote things in Greek and Latin and so forth. Um, in the field of Byzantine studies, there, as I said, haven't really been that many. It, so it is a field with a very low proportion of um, original um, narrative reconstructions, by which I mean um, reconstructions made by scholars who are working from the sources and, you know, who are reaching original arguments rather than uh, just kind of synthesizing what you read in other narrative sources. There are a bunch of those. I'm not sure that they play any role in um, um, uh, scholarly production. Um, you know, think of uh, John Julius Nor Norwich's, you know, three-part sequence, um, you know, of Byzantine history and so forth. Um, those are never cited, as far as I know, unless, you know, the discussion is about, you know, them. Um, but it's a it's a rel relatively under-narrated field, mine is. Even for the particular sub, you know, periods, right? Uh, you know, late antiquity has gotten a bunch, um, you know, down to about the 7th century. After that, it's like Arab conquest. They have their own narratives. There's some older books, you know, from that previous century about this or that sort of sub-period. But it's not a field that tends to um, value or produce original narratives very much. And I think they tend to function in two kinds of ways. One is, oh, when you want to cite, <laughs> like, for this period generally, just, you know, and then you just cite whatever. You don't even have to read it. Um, so that's the kind of obligatory citation um, utility. And the other one is when you want to disagree with some consensus in the field, 
that's a place to go and look and see if you can find that view expressed that you already know that you want to disagree with. So, you know, sad though it is, the moment my book drops, it's basically going to become the largest target for criticism and attack because, you know, that's it's kind of that's the way that that scholar of the argument is framed often. Um, and and cor- correctly so, I suppose, uh, that you're either producing new knowledge or new interpretation. And, that you know, for it to be meaningful and impactful, it has to change, you know, our picture of something in some meaningful way. Um, so that's largely, I think, how it's going to function is, is sort of people disagreeing with this or that in it. It's fair enough. I aspire to do something else, though, which is to actually have original interpretations of this or that. Right now, a lot of the book follows the latest work in, you know, any subfield I did a lot of reading about to, you know, sift through the latest scholarship and see where I where I agree or, you know, what I wanted to incorporate. Uh, but the book also does have some original arguments um, that I reached by reading the relevant sources. And so, you know, I hope to kind of advance the discussion in certain subfields that way, just by making original arguments as well. How long they'll last, we'll see. Yeah, let's stick with this idea of how long they'll last, because one of the things that I've always been struck by, and this is something that I got when I was in graduate school, I I look for a narrative, and then oftentimes I would see discussions of this narrative as being outdated, right? And so there's a sort of idea of narratives having expiration dates, at which point they just get entirely thrown away. I think the the classic example of this is Theodore Momsen's uh, Roman history, his Romashigashikta, which is the only work of history, by the way, to ever win a Nobel Prize is not read, right? Meanwhile, his more analytical work, which he designed to be read in parallel, the Staatsrecht still is. So one of these works we've sort of decided is, is not worth engaging with the narrative part we're willing to throw away, but we'll keep that analytical side. And so I guess what I'm wondering here is, is the role of narrative misunderstood? Are we failing to appreciate what this can bring to the table if we view it only as something that we punch holes in until it eventually sinks and then wait for someone else to build the next ship that we can use for target practice? Or is there a a more productive reason to produce these sequence of new narrative histories? Well, there is, though inevitably, the picture that you just painted is going to be true to a large extent. And it again, it varies by field. Like I said, um, in Roman history, there are a lot of narrative reconstructions and original ones between us and Momsen. In Byzantine history, there are very few. In fact, there are really only, let's say, three. That's it. Um, there's Treadgold in the 1990s. There's Ostrogorsky, which was a book written in the 30s originally, right? And 1930s. And because um, for various reasons, Treadgold's book hasn't, it never really quite caught on. Um, many, many people still go back and refer to Ostrogorsky cite Ostrogorsky, assign Ostrogorsky to their students, right? In the early 21st century, we're like almost 100 years after he formed the ideas that lie at the core of that book. 
right? Okay, so the English translation that we have is based on a on a later version of it that he produced, but it's still very, very old. And it is massively outdated. I mean, I I, I couldn't assign it to students in the belief that I'm assigning to them, you know, real history anymore. I mean, not not to criticize Ostrogorsky, he did the best that he could under the circumstances, right? But so much has changed since then. Yeah, so that's inevitable. However, let's flip this around and think about it this way. What is the purpose of producing thousands of specialized articles every year Tens of thousands? I don't even know, right? Who is reading all of this? And for what purpose are they being produced? Now, you can make an argument that, um, you know, all knowledge is valuable and, you know, very, very specific particular investigations have their own value in their sort of proper domain about this manuscript or that icon or this particular event that happened and so forth. But I do think that in the field collectively, there is an underlying sense, sometimes it might be tacit, that we're doing all of this as a collective project, right? That we're trying to understand the society better on every level. And that at some point, it's going to produce some kind of synthesis, right? Something is going to emerge from all of this. Now, that synthesis is often, this is going to sound strange, it's tacitly tacit. In other words, nobody talks about it. Nobody says, oh, we're doing this in order to build toward a particular synthesis that so-and-so is going to write or whatever. It's like there's no plan, there's no strategy at all, right? So it's all tacit, right? But when I say it's tacitly tacit is the idea that we're not talking about the fact that we don't have a plan to synthesize all of this. It's just kind of quietly understood that we're all kind of reading as much as we possibly can and individually forming a big picture in our mind as how the field is evolving. And that's it. That's the new picture. It's whatever you form in your mind based on whatever you've been reading of the latest scholarship. So writing a history that actually tries to pull a lot of this together is trying to concretize that. It's like, you know, here's kind of where we stand, right? So yes, there's value for the individual studies, the very particular things on their own. But at the same time, insofar as we think we're building up a new picture, what does it look like? Now, I have to add a caveat here that many people will not think that what I've written is that. So my big picture doesn't correspond to the tacit one that they've been building up in their minds by reading all the specialized articles, right? So in some respects, mine might be a disappointment. It's like, no, we weren't. I didn't think we were building up to that. How did you get that from where we were going, right? Um, in other respects, it might. And as I said, there's some stuff in there that's original to me. Um, in other words, there's going to be a, huh, what? Where did this come from? I wasn't expecting this based on what I was reading, right? I was reading that the Persian invasion of the 7th century was benign. Where did this come from? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, so there's a give and take and a dialectic here. You kind of have to drop the work into the, you know, context of scholarly production and kind of 
see what happens um or 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 look away <laughs> maybe i'll do that i'll just drop it and then just turn right around and i don't know go work on seleucid history or something and never read a review and see what happens uh in 20 years we'll see what where it stands so one of the things that occurs to me as you're speaking here is that when i've gone back and looked at these supposedly outdated narratives the ones that I found most useful, the ones that actually gave me something, were the ones that had precisely the more abstract, either meta narrative or social interpretations built into their political narrative, right? They give me kind of an index of here were the analytical lenses that were considered productive or predominant in a field at a given point in time. And that actually helps me chart how and why the the scholarship has evolved. So I do think that even for for academics, it's worth going back sometimes and for the better narratives, actually engaging with them just to get a sense for how our field got to where it has has come to. Yeah. Um, let's move on then to a maybe sort of totally perpendicular uh, critique of these large narratives and narratives in general. And this is one that comes out of the linguistic turn, which if you don't know, refers to a set of sort of analytical shifts that took place in the 70s and 80s in the American Academy. And I'm thinking here in particular of a figure named Hayden White, who's essentially argued that when we create narratives, we distort history by imposing all sorts of different dramatic structures. We make things tragic or comic or horrific or moralizing and sort of advocated for a sense that all narratives are in some sense a distortion of history rather than a mechanism by which we get at historical truth. So I was wondering how you think about that in the in terms of your own historical narrative. I do think about that. Um, and it was a preoccupation of many historians when I was in grad school. Um, so it's not something you can easily forget. So basically, the idea is that narrative is more a function of our storytelling and less of like what actually happened, which is much more chaotic. And we take that chaos and we put it into the form of like, a tragedy, right? Or a forensic investigation or a comedy or a farce or, you know, whatever mode we're writing our his our narrative in, right? right? What kind of, what kind of genre is this if it were a story? And that you're imposing this literary structure um, on what in reality was a very confusing and perhaps inherently meaningless set of events. Um, or, you know, that every person participating in those events had a different narrative of what was actually going on. Right. Yes. Um, now, okay, so there are a number of sort of critiques of Hayden's White, Hayden White's approach uh, and the whole kind of linguistic deconstructive turn. Um, though I will say that to, to a large degree, it's true in the sense that you do find like modern narratives that are imposing a kind of, um, you know, particular narrative mode on a set of events um, that, for example, I wouldn't go with that particular mode for that event. Right? And, or you can see how they're taking, an, they're, they're based on a single ancient medieval narrative source and kind of sort of twisting its language to produce the the desired effect. And it's like, no, but that source isn't actually telling that kind of story, but you've made it say that kind of story. Okay, so that definitely happens. 
Um, I, I don't think that we can entirely avoid this, right? Um, you know, and, and you know, notoriously the same event will be written about in one scholarly tradition as a disaster and by another as a triumph, right? Think of 1453, right? Is this a triumphal narrative or is it a tragic narrative, right? Is it worthy of a panegyric or lament? Okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Um, now, on the other hand, um, where I, I was never persuaded by Hayden Wand was that there's something problematic with narrative as such, the way that you know, I defined it at the beginning. And I think he actually got it entirely wrong here because narrative is I think baked into the way in which all human beings operate, live their lives. They make plans, they do things, right? Those plans may or may not work out, but they take steps to bring about a certain result. They engage with each other and interpersonal relations are in narrative form. I don't think that human beings can operate as human beings without having a narrative of who they are and a desired narrative of where they want to go or a feared narrative of where they don't want to go. And our sources are full of these things. So I think that narrative is essential to human beings. And in fact, I would go so far as to say that um, most of what we've been talking about in the past decades as, quote, identity is a set of narratives. Right? When you ask people about their identity, they very quickly will start um, you know, telling stories. And, you know, you have to be, you know, trained in grad school to talk about your identity in an abstract way, not through stories, right? Everywhere else is through stories, right? Including in our sources. And so and narratives are hugely important, not just because this is how people actually plan out and live their lives, um, but because this is how they form their identities. And I'll give you one very striking example that I, um, that's a conclusion I came to in, in writing a part of the book, which is that Christian identity in, in Byzantium was to a larger degree a function of narratives and not of doctrines, right? The theologians will write ecclesiastical history as if it's about doctrines. And I mean, theologians then and theologians now, as if people actually disagree about, you know, in one nature or out of two natures or whatever. But that's not what I found. I found that in reality, the theology, you know, there were a couple of, you know, maybe a dozen or two dozen theologians at any particular time for whom the theology actually sort of mattered and who claimed they could understand it. For everybody else, and in, in, in some cases, mass mobilization, um, it was about narratives and the, they couldn't possibly process the theology. The theology just became a slogan for the narrative. In the same way that like Brexit was just a slogan for a particular narrative about British identity. Um, and so the narratives were usually because, you know, these are Christians. So these are narratives of persecution. Right. And it wasn't so much, oh, our theology is better than yours. And here's why. I mean, they did talk about that, too, because, again, it's the theologians who are telling us this. But in other cases, like, well, your side did this to our side, and that was wrong. And so you have to now apologize, and you have to do all of these things to make us feel better because our story turned out to be right. Right. Um, 
and 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 on and on. And it's so it's it's narratives of of persecution, narratives of victimization, or narratives of triumph. You know, whatever the case is. Um, you know, Christians had both, and they built up their identity through those things, right? And so the narrative is fundamental to you know who are these people uh, that that we're talking about right? on all levels. Um, you know, be it you're writing about the army, you're writing about the court, you're writing about anyone. Um, so, um, no, I, I I will double down on narrative as sort of fundamental for understanding uh, what people did in, in, in history. Yeah. yeah, so to the theological point, I imagine more people in Byzantium visited the, the latrine where Arius died than read any word of Arian or anti-Arian theology. That's that's a right. good point. Yes, that is yeah. that is correct. Uh, and yeah, I, I think I'm in complete agreement here. And this is why I reach for narratives when I'm trying to enter a new area, right? Cognitively, there's just a, a huge advantage to having that narrative to hang things on. One of the dirty secrets of scholarship is that style matters right? Uh, We like to think of ourselves as being purely logic-driven in our analysis of history, but things like Symes' Roman Revolution or Peter Brown's transformation approach, these are very much based on the style and the ability of these authors to write in an evocative way that kind of captures the imagination. And I think their ideas have stuck around and been durable in part because of that. So did you have to rethink your approach to stylistics, the way in which you wrote in order to undertake this history? And if so, how did you make those adjustments? What adjustments were there? I did. And this is, so you mentioned a dirty secret. So the other dirty secret about narrative history is that there's a kind of expectation that it should be fun, right? Even if you know, it's tragic or grim or whatever, there's always a kind of intellectual hope that it will be fun and entertaining even you know like on an intellectual level right if not just on a sheer storytelling level and that dirty secret is another reason why sort of narrative is held in suspicion um you know and and why it can easily verge into you know either like a novelistic approach um, on the one hand, or sensationalism, or something like that. So these are these are temptations. They're not the temptations that you're asking about. Those aren't the problems, but it is there, right? Uh, you verges on becoming fictional. So I definitely had to rethink um, my prose style. Um, in fact, I took about a year to look into this question before I started writing. Uh, not that the, my prose style in the more academic. Uh, or like analytical approach um, books that I write is, you know, bad or anything like that. Um, You know, I think I normally have a pretty vivid, you know, way of communicating ideas um, in, in prose, but the, the style I was used to was in some respects inappropriate for a narrative and the style that a great deal of scholarship is written in is wholly inappropriate (laughs) And I had to make sure that I um, sort of purified my my writing from certain modes that make scholarly prose uh, so often unpleasant to read. Um, so I'll, I'll quickly list three of these. 
and I'm not even going to bother to list um, like jargon. Like that's a given. You don't use jargon in a narrative history that you hope is going to be accessible for um, a large public. So having said that, first, um, I had to find ways to rid my style of excessive hedging and qualification. So this is a defensive mode of writing that many scholars use to protect what they're saying from criticism that they expect from any direction. So like you want to say a thing and you ring it around with an entire palisade of defensive qualifications so that nobody, you know, say, ah, but there's an exception or, oh, but, you know, you need to qualify it for this. Right. So as you're moving along, you're, you're, you're dragging this little, you know, <laughs> a pillow fort of, of, of hedging and qualification and defensive. You're, you're preemptively trying to defend yourself against possible criticism. And so everything that you say, um, you know, you, you might want to say one thing, but it comes along with another seven or eight um, in terms of that kind of baggage, um, which makes the style very clunky and cumbersome and, and difficult to read. So when you're writing a large narrative and you and you really have to pare down the words, like you can't devote time to preempting every possible criticism or or putting possibilities and so forth everywhere just because yeah there's an inherent uncertainty about everything that you're writing you're just going to have to assume good faith on the part of the reader that the reader knows that this is a reconstruction which is you know muscle men uh, you know more or less you've got it right and or that there are always there's always a potential for for qualification um okay so that's one thing uh defensive writing um, it's now, now I'm so sensitized to it. It's sort of annoying when I see it, even in like academic articles. Um, the second is, uh, second order scholarly, um, discussions with the implied reader, right? So, so this is when the scholar sort of pulls away from the material and addresses the reader in a discussion that is in a way kind of irrelevant for the topic, but is part of the whole sort of scholarly mode. In other words, sentences such as, in order to understand X, we need to Y. In other words, I'm, I'm looking at you and I'm moving you through my mental procedure to explain my methodology. Right. Um, so, I've read that kind of sentence by this point tens of thousands of times, and I never want to read it or again, I know I will, but I never want to write it again. I, I hope not. Um, if something isn't important, I'm not going to put it into narratives. And there are better ways of explaining in narrative form why something presupposes something else or how things are linked, right? Um, so I don't, there's no discussion between me and the reader. I'm not turning to the reader to explain to the reader what I'm doing. The reader is being shown a picture and, and hopefully all of the parts of it are interconnected in such a way that the reader can see how they're interconnected. Right. I don't, I don't need to start pointing things out to the reader. Right. 
I'm not there. You're not there. We're just looking at these things. Okay. And the third thing is to try to avoid being too predictable. Right? This is another thing that tires me when I'm reading academic writing, which is you read the first sentence of a paragraph, let's say, and you know exactly how the rest of it is going to go. You know what methodology is going to be applied. You know where, what conclusions are going to be drawn. You almost don't even need to read the rest. And this is because, you know, we all are trained. I don't know if trained is the right word, but at any rate, through trial and error and the peer review process, we learn to write everything as if it's a grad student paper, right? This is kind of how all articles are written, right? They need to be accessible to like the average grad student in the format that a grad student understands. So you state what the problem is, you state the methodology, you then apply the methodology to the problem, you find a conclusion, then you restate everything it, like that, that, right? Very predictable, right? Um, by this point, I've read the same argument so many times in so many, like, for example, if I know that if an article begins with a sentence such as, uh, like Roman borders were not designed to keep everybody out, but you know, recent scholarship has shown that they are. You were there were fluid zones of interaction. I, I can tell you exactly how the rest of the paper is going to go if you tell me what material it's applied to. Right. Done. Right. 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 Yeah. So I, I wanted to avoid being predictable in a boring way and so and this is one of the more difficult things to learn was how to mix in perceptions from people at the time with everything that i'm saying that are just a little off center to give you something to think about something oh that's an interesting little twist there right or to end a paragraph with some interesting sort of twist or observation of my own that doesn't confuse the reader. You never want to confuse the reader, right? But I think we're not honoring the reader's intelligence by just hammering the same predictable things over and over and again. So I like to find ways to say, okay, you've you've gotten the the picture here, but consider this little twist here. And that isn't that also interesting? Um, so that you're left, you like sort of mentally, I pictured as a reader kind of sitting back and think, oh yeah, that's a, I hadn't thought of that. Right. That was, that was difficult to do. Um, and honestly, you know, the, for the first part, the introduction of like voices from the time that are kind of curious, I benefited a lot from doing the cabinet of byzantine curiosities uh, sort of that little book i published at oxford a few years ago because it trained me to look for weird things <laughs> for lack of a better way of describing it um and those weird things you know often they they point to deeper more interesting um sort of realities and so that's i tried to mix those in Anyway, so that's my that's my pitch for the style. Yeah, and obviously a natural follow-up here is when we think about style and, and who we're writing for is the fundamental question of our readers and 
why why do people read narratives? Um, speaking from my own experience, obviously I approach this from the mindset of an academic historian. I've already commented on how I find them to be by far the best scaffolding to understand a period, to begin to integrate other bits of knowledge. I always try to start with the narrative when I can. Um, but I, why do you think people read narratives and, and how did that fit into your planning and the goals that you set out for this new narrative history? I mean, I can answer that easily for myself, uh, which is that, I mean, I read narratives when I want to enter a new field uh, that I don't know that much about. So in recent years, I've been reading a lot about early modern European history and also the lead up to World War I and the war itself, for example. So I need a narrative just to orient me um, in terms of who, where, when, what, kind of the basics. Um, I mean, I, I know that I always knew the basics, ba the basic basics, <laughs> the non-basic basics. Um, but for a field like mine, I think I'll just refer to what I said earlier, that there's a point in the development of every research field where I think it needs to take stock of where it is and what's going on. And even though it's impossible to synthesize everyone's work in a way that will um, you please them or find them in agreement. Um, I think it is a worthwhile exercise to do, um, you know, for a field every once in a while to kind of try to put all the pieces together and see where we're at, or, you know, what kind of picture can be put together even by a sort of idiosyncratic person. And that's what I am um, to, you know, based on what's been published recently. Um, so you know, scholars will, so for 1200 years, you know, most people are not experts on all of it. Um, so, you know, they, they have a home base in, in a couple centuries or something, and they will want to know, oh, what's going on in that very early period or that very late period. Um, and so it's always useful to have that as a kind of orientation um, in, in, periods that are somewhat removed from the one in which you specialized. Uh, so yeah, I hope they use it that way, uh, but we'll see. Yeah. And I, maybe I can push you here to also uh, to come back to this idea of the entertainment value. So I think that's something that both of us share is we mm -hmm. read history and other periods that we're not going to publish scholarly work in because it, it's fun. It's entertaining. There's something there's something good about knowing uh, and understanding and, and and adding this to the sort of pool and repertoire of knowledge that we use to understand our own areas of specialization, but also just the world around us more generally. Absolutely. Um, yes, I should have said, I hope this history is also fun to read. <laughs> um, having read large sections of it, I, I can tell you that I found it fun to read. So well, thank you. You can put that on your book cover if you'd like. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, as, as, a, as an endorsement on the back. Um, yes, I think I'm not going to just straight up invent the endorsements as I did for the cabinet book. Um, but I also find very, you know, uh, in-depth, uh, abstract scholarly arguments very entertaining. Um especially when they're doing something very new or ambitious. And, you know, it doesn't matter if they're written in the most, you know, abstract scholarly jargon, so long as, you know, it's in good faith and I can, it's not done to show off and I can follow it. 
Uh, I, I find that very, very intellectually, very, very entertaining, um, probably more so than reading narratives. So this segues naturally. So once upon a time in the podcast, you would ask um, folks for book recommendations, but I imagine this just created reading lists that no one was ever going to get through because each guest was giving three books plus the book that they were being brought on to interview about. I know for my part that I quickly, I, I ran out of space on my list for for all the recommendations, but can you talk a little bit about what your favorite narrative histories are or have been recently and why? Uh, and maybe this is another way of coming at the same question of what makes a narrative history good? Yeah, I also gave up on trying to follow up on my own guests' recommendations. I, I thought that it would be a good way for me to get some good book recommendations, and it was, but it it just proved to be too much and also kind of stressful. Um you know, kind of the the kind of stress like when you get the new books, you know, released from that on BMCR or something like that. Yeah, from there's BMCR, always, yeah. Yes, there's always a little tinge of, uh, okay, it never stops. It never stops. And, oh, my God, is it going to be in German this time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, I, I have narrative books that I like for different kinds of reasons. I will mention here um, Clark's Sleepwalkers, which is about the origins of World War One. Um, it's a pretty large book, um, and it's not even about the war itself. It's just about the, you know, approximately the months, but ultimately the years of uh, how Europe got itself into that kind of mess. And I, I just think it's masterfully done. It's not a straightforward narrative. I mean, it it jumps back and forth a lot, but you can follow um, all of the pieces and it just synthesized everything in a wonderful way. Um, it's amazing the kind of resources that modern historians have. You know, we, we could never do something like that about any pre-modern period, but um, you, you, it's, it's also a, a way of, it's a book from which I learned a lot about like all of the countries involved in the war in the late 19th century. This is such a fascinating period. And in particular, the haphazard and idiotic way in which major decisions were made by relatively detached elites who had not thought too much about the consequences of their actions and were very unreflective about it. Uh, and I as I was reading the book, I, I found it to be very resonant with our own reality. We have increasingly disconnected elites who don't understand even the consequences that their decisions are, are, are having. One of the things I'll say about um, Sleepwalkers is uh, he also has a very good sense for uh, the narrative episode that hooks you. So it begins with an assassination exactly. of the king of Serbia. Um, and I... I, I defy anyone not to want to read the rest of the book after this opening. Cause like it's, it's vicious. It's brutal. The level of detail that is available, as you said, to modern historians allows it to be vivid in a way that very few events in the ancient or Byzantine world are capable of being vivid. It's, it's really, really outstanding. Uh, and also the, the utter fuzziness around who was allowed to make which decisions in the various governments, right? So the Brits are actually a bit of an outlier here because they had some kind of 
order and division of responsibilities and competences. But if you go to Russia, who's allowed to do what is basically a matter of who can get away with it, which makes international politics yeah. a, a bit of a, a bit of a mess. So another endorsement for sleepwalkers because I also found it to be great. Um, yeah. So let me um, say more about what you just said, the opening of the book, because it strikes me as Homeric in what sense? Right. So you expect a book about the origin of World War One to be about the assassination of Ferdinand, right, in Sarajevo. Either that or it has to begin in, in like the French Revolution, right? If you're doing a super long durée. Well, no, 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 no. The origin of World War One is that very particular assassination, right? Which triggered all of these invasions and treaties and alliances into a world war. And the book begins with another assassination in the general geographical vicinity, right? But not that one. Um, and it's, I think, so in the same way that Homer, right? So Homer is telling the story of the War of Troy. The War of Troy is essentially, you know, these two kings and their allies fighting over this one woman. And he tells that story, but not those two kings and not that woman, right? Um, so he kind of uses the same narrative template, but shifts it with a different cast of characters, but related to the same story. And and Clark does that in Sleepwalkers. And I, um, I think it was very well done because part of the argument of the book is contingency, right? Like how many times a war could have broken out in the decades before that with the parties aligned in different ways right but it's purely contingent that in well in this case no they decided not to go to war because you know accidental reasons and then in 1914 it you know the spark actually you know it took off and you know you 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 had the conflagration um but it could have happened it's so many times in the past and i think he uses that episode that way now look oh, i mean these kinds of royal assassinations are kind of taking place the alliances are already in place they're shifting around all the time you know oh it looks it looks like it's gonna no it didn't happen this time so i like that level of contingency um in in, in the narrative anyway yeah, yeah and i'll i'll also say that good narratives i think make a make room for this contingency so when we talk about narratives being sort of intellectually devalued or not or viewed as being passe in some way, oftentimes that's because they have a tendency to present history as an inevitable sequence of events, almost like a, a physics equation, because A, then B, then C. And the best narratives are the ones that really highlight how much you know was unexpected, how much there wasn't, for instance, a long decline. So sooner or later, the Roman Empire in the West was just going to be knocked off, that there were actual moments of decision and moments of actual possibility prior to these events taking place. Right. You're talking about Peter Heather's narrative, the fall of the, West, the Roman yeah. Empire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. That's another narrative book that I really did enjoy. Um, I got to say, um, I, I think it, it steers a very level-headed um, path through a lot of the it's a very obviously the fall of the Western Roman Empire is very contentious, and a lot of things have been said. And um, I I really admire the way he 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 managed to synthesize what I think is relevant, and not to get bogged down in discussions of a lot of irrelevant things, um, in order to produce precisely that kind of 
um, study of contingency. Um, um, anyway, yeah, no, I, I think that's a good book too. And I would recommend that. Okay, well, we should wrap this up. So I want to end with what might be a little bit of a cruel question, but I think it ties together a lot of what we've discussed so far. And that is, when do you think your narrative will need to be replaced? And in particular, how do you think future narratives are going to improve on yours? And to be clear, I'm not looking for a guess in terms of years, but sort of what intellectual or scholarly preconditions are going to need to be met in order for a new narrative to be necessary and productive? Oh, um, yeah, I can think of two ways in which that might happen. The first is a gradual accumulation of corrections on particular matters that reaches a kind of critical mass such that it's time for a new overview. Um, and these might be corrections on um, like, you know, particular events. Um, there have been a lot of those in recent years, and there's no reason to think that's going to stop. Um, so that's a process of continual refinement to, you know, the, the better integration of, let's say, climate change data and narrative. So right now, just for the record, I don't think that scholars working in this relatively recent area for this period of history have managed to find ways to integrate the proxy data that they have for climate change with the narrative that they have. All attempts to do that, I, in my view, are either very clumsy or deterministic. Um, just That's just one particular area. Um, I don't know what methodologies and models might evolve to make that uh, work, but I don't see it working right now. Um, so that's one way. Um, it's just the accumulation of many you know, small corrections. Um, but there might also be a big one, which is, you know, if someone happens to disagree with my view of the nature of the Roman state in this period, uh, which is kind of one of the fundamental, right? It's like the keel um, on, on which a lot of the rest is built. And, um, you know, is is not a, I know that it's not going to be, um, uh, find everybody in agreement, um, though I think that the evidence is overwhelmingly there for the picture that I present. And in fact, I'm going to go on in future years to, to strengthen that picture with more sort of analytical specialized scholarship of my own. I think that there's a lot more to be done there about all kinds of things, such as the infrastructural capabilities of the state, its communicative capabilities, um, but more fundamentally, it's important its ability to um, sort of construct subjectivities among its subjects on the ground and get them to at least tolerate it. You don't need to have like, you know, heated identification with it. You just need for people to understand why it's there and what it's doing and what they get out of it in order to pay the taxes that they do and, and you know, suffer the annoyances of having a, bureaucratic state, it's not easy to get people to accept that, uh, as we can see all around us. And I think that the Roman state did that successfully for most of its history, um, which is a very long history. So it's a very successful project of state building in this way. Um, so how did it do that? And how did it survive 
the most difficult millennium of history for that part of the world by far, right? So that's a significant accomplishment. Um, and uh, in a sense, it's kind of the main story of the book. What are the sources of resilience for this organization and and its people who, for all to all appearances, for most of that history, were on board with that project? Um, yeah, there's some exceptions, but basically they were. So that's the story in a way. So if somebody wants to tell a different story about this, it would need a different book. Right. So going back to this idea of these overarching meta narratives. Well, Anthony, I've really enjoyed this conversation. So I'm glad that you let me uh, hijack your podcast to force you to talk about this. Uh, next time you'll get to disappear behind the microphone. Uh, any closing comments you'd like to leave with? Um, I look forward to doing this again with you when our book on the armies come out, uh, comes out and we can talk about a whole other range of issues about writing history because uh, I really enjoyed writing that with you. Yeah, um, ton of fun. Yeah, totally different kind of book. Um, boy, boy, was that a different kind of book. <laughs> well, for one thing, we were able to write it in the course of a single summer. So a very different scale of project from yes. Yes. Yeah, we'll talk about that process maybe when we do that. So uh, stay tuned. I'm looking forward to doing that too. All right. Well, thank you very much. Take care, man.